Good morning, church. It's good to see you and good to be with you today. Often, uh, what a good author, something that a a good author will do, I don't know if you're a reader, uh, but uh, good authors often start off their story, start off their book with several different characters, several different themes, several different stories that seem disconnected. And as they go through and as, as you continue to read, uh, there's always a moment, and you expect this, don't you, that, that these, these different stories, these different characters, they come together. Uh, there's a moment of revelation, a moment of understanding, oh, this is what this book is about. This is what we've been talking about the whole time. Uh, this, this, this revelation moment, this moment uh, of, of where, where things come together and, and make sense. And the Bible, we, we've been saying in, in this series, From Garden to Glory, the Bible is telling a story. The Bible is telling a discernible story. And the reason is because the Bible, though it, it's written over thousands of years by several, uh, by many human authors, it has one author, a divine author, and God is the best author. Why do you think we like stories that come together like that? Well, it's because we're created by him. And the Bible story that we've seen so far in the last five weeks, we started with creation, that God made the world. We saw the fall that Adam and Eve sinned and rebelled against God and plunged humanity and all creation uh, into sin and decay. And we saw God promise to Abraham that he chose Abraham, so I'll make you a great nation, I'm gonna bless you. We saw the, the nation of Israel come from that, but then go into slavery in Egypt. We saw Moses, God through Moses, bring Israel, deliver them out of Egypt and take them into the wilderness. We saw them fail to go into the promised land the first time and then have to wander in the wilderness for 40 years. And then they do actually, they, they, we got, they get into the promised land, they go in um, and, it, and it looks great and, and the kingdom is built and then it builds, as we saw last week, up to David and Solomon. This is the glory, the height of Israel's a kingdom, but it doesn't last, right? And it, it, it goes down and the kings and the people are unfaithful to God. And so God sends them into exile. And the Old Testament ends with a, a return from exile. There's a remnant, a small group of Jews that is able to return to the land, is able to begin to rebuild the temple. And I think Pastor Kevin did a really good job last week of ending on, on a sort of cliffhanger. Right, because the Old Testament does end on a cliffhanger, right? Because the, the, clearly the promises of God, the promises to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob have not been fulfilled. The promises to David have not been fulfilled. And God's people waits. And today we turn to the New Testament. Um, and, and, and Jesus is where the story comes together, right? He is where the story comes together. It comes together not in a truth, not in an idea, not in uh, an event. It comes together in a person. We've been talking about the kingdom of God throughout this series, God's people in God's place under his rule and blessing. And this, this sermon is called the present kingdom, the arrival of the king. And when Jesus shows up, he begins his ministry by saying, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. It's here. So who is this man? Who is Jesus? This is the most important question that there is. It's a good ringtone. Love it. Uh, (laughs) Who is Jesus? 
right? Who is he? So I should have some theme music for the sermon, you know? It's good. Uh, who is he? We're going to look at this question. Who is Jesus? From three perspectives this morning. Three perspectives. The personal, the biblical, theological, and universal. The personal, how, how does uh, an, an Israelite contemporary uh, of Jesus, how, how would, would you, if you were a Jew, if you were a Jew in the first century, how would you encounter Jesus? Kind of zoomed in as close as we're going to be. And then zoom out a little bit, biblical, theological. How did Jesus and his disciples understand who Jesus was? And then zooming out as far as we can, the universal question. What does Jesus have to do with everything? And then, and then we're going to ask, if that's true, how we should respond to this. And so let's, uh, let's go to the Lord in prayer, and then we'll, we'll jump in today. I'd love to give you a moment just in your seat uh, to... To, to talk with the Lord and to ask the Lord to pray uh, that, that he would speak to you today. Would you pray also for uh, your neighbor, that God would speak to them, whoever's sitting with you, your family, this person on your row, would you ask God to speak to them as well? <clears throat> Lastly, would you pray for me? Would you pray that God would uh, would make me faithful to his word and that I would be helpful to you. Father, you know our weakness, our inadequacy. You know my weakness and my inadequacy. And so we need you. Would you come? Would you speak to us? We know that no one, <laughs> no one truly sees who Jesus is without you shining your light into our hearts. And so would you shine your light into, into our hearts by your spirit that you've given us? We rely on you. We need you. We thank you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. First, the personal. Personal. How did an Israelite contemporary encounter Jesus? Well, if you were a Jew in the first century, uh, you probably wouldn't have heard of Jesus until he was 30, right? Until he began his ministry as he lived kind of a quiet life as a, a carpenter's son. Um, unless maybe you were from Nazareth, you're from Nazareth or the surrounding kind of small towns. Uh, maybe you would have heard of, of Mary, how she, uh, she got pregnant before she was married, uh, but, but Joseph still, still took her as his wife and raised Jesus as his son. Maybe you know him as the carpenter's son. Maybe he made a table for you. But probably, if you lived in Israel, you wouldn't have heard of him until he, was, he was, began his ministry. And probably the first thing you heard uh, was Jesus as a healer. You probably heard rumors that there's, there's a man. 
and he's, he's touching lepers and they're becoming clean. He's spitting in dirt and rubbing it in blind people's eyes and all of a sudden they can see. He's even, he's even touching corpses and they're coming back to life. He's raising the dead. Maybe you hear about this and so you, you want to see it. So when Jesus is, is in doing his ministry, when he's in near your region, maybe you travel, maybe you tra- walk a day, two days, three days in order to be with him on one of these days of ministry, many, many days like this in his ministry, when he would heal everyone who was brought to him. So you, so you saw, maybe you would see uh, the, the people with various diseases, various disabilities, various ailments, various demon-possessed people, various mental health issues. Everyone comes to Jesus and they all walk away from him healed, whole, well. If you did go one of those days, you would have also likely heard Jesus teach. You'd have known him, you would have heard of him as a teacher. He taught, as the rabbis said, he taught the Old Testament. But he, he talked about it differently than anyone else. He spoke as one with authority, not as the scribes. He, he submitted to God's law. He respected and revered the word of God. But, but he was also able to, to talk in a way that, that he could explain the meaning and even, even expand the meaning as though he was, was authorized to do that. No one ever taught like this man. And you might have, if you saw all this, you can imagine, you might have said, as, as many did, when Jesus in, in Matthew 16 asked his disciples, who do the people say that I am? They say, well, some say John the Baptist, right, who had already been killed. Some say John the Baptist, some say Elijah, some say Jeremiah or one of the prophets. Maybe you would have thought, yeah, he, he, man, he, he could be one of the prophets risen from the dead. Maybe his God has sent us Elijah again. I think I remember something about that in the scriptures. Elijah would come. Maybe, and then no, one, no one has done this kind of thing since Elijah did it. He might have been in Jerusalem uh, for the feast of the Passover when Jesus rode in on a donkey and when the crowds, maybe you were a part of it, laid down their cloaks and laid down branches all across the road and said, Hosanna, Son of David, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And you might have asked, as many did, could this be the Messiah? Could this be the king we've waited for? Is he going to deliver us from Roman oppression and rule? If you were in Jerusalem, you would have seen and, and heard that he was in trouble. He got in trouble with the rulers and authorities, as he often did. He was arrested. And he, he, he said things that made, made them angry. He said things like, before Abraham was, I am. Claiming divinity. You might not know what to do with that. It would be easy right, for an Israelite to believe that a prophet would come, a prophet from God. That happened throughout their history. But a man be God? That would be harder. You wouldn't know, there's no category. You don't have a category for that. But he was arrested for this. He was brought before the Sanhedrin, the, the Jewish ruling council. He was brought before the, the Romans and the, the Roman authorities. And, and maybe, 
Because uh, the, the elders and the chief priests and the scribes, these people you really respected uh, because they were saying, and maybe they convinced, they would convince you and say, this, this guy is not the Messiah, he's a fraud. He's a fraud. He, he's trying to, to pull you away from God. And so maybe when Pilate said, who do you want me to release for you? Barabbas, the murderer, or Jesus? Perhaps your voice would say, Barabbas, give us Barabbas. And he says, what, what do I do then with Jesus? You say, crucify him. Kill him. Maybe you would have seen Jesus walking down the Jerusalem roads, carrying a crossbeam, part of his cross. Maybe you saw him stumble, have to get help. Maybe from afar, you, you saw him raised up on the tree, on the cross. You, didn't, you wouldn't go close. Golgotha, the place of the skull, it stunk. Shameful, you wouldn't go close. Maybe you see him raised up and see him die. But then, the next week, you would have heard rumors Certainly in Jerusalem, Jesus is alive again. He defeated death. He came back. His followers certainly said he did. They said they ate with him. They said they touched him. They said they spoke with him. They they didn't seem crazy. They seemed perfectly sane. They had a, a light and a joy in their eyes. And many of them died For that very claim, Jesus rose from the dead. Jesus lived a real human life in space, in time, in history, in Israel and Palestine. This is his life. But the question is, what did it mean? What did it mean? And this is where we go to the biblical and theological, the second perspective. How did Jesus and his disciples understand who Jesus was? Or what did they say? Him and through his ministry and then those who recorded, his disciples who recorded his life and have passed it down to us, the eyewitnesses of, of his life. Well, Matthew begins with an account of, a, of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Now, Jesus uh, didn't occur in a vacuum. Right? He didn't just come out of nowhere. He, he, he came as part of a story, the story that God is telling. Right? He came as the part of the story that we've been telling for the last five weeks uh, that's going on in the scriptures. And for modern Western people who are generally disconnected and or ignorant of history, right, which no offense, me too, like it's just, that's our cultural moment, that's what we're like, uh, genealogy is really a boring way to start, isn't it? That's why we get to the, to the genealogies in our Bible reading, it's like, okay, yeah, got it, you know, skip to the story part. It's boring for us. But, but listen, if you're, if you're a Jew, if you're a Jewish audience that's been tracking with this story, right, and you hear on account of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, that's Messiah, Jesus, Messiah, the King, the son of David, 
the son of Abraham? That's like someone just handed you a stick of dynamite. Like, oh, something's about to blow. Like, this is big. This is huge. What? So who is Jesus? Who did his followers understand him to be? Well, first is creator. Creator God. Right? His genesis in the beginning starts with in the beginning. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So John starts his gospel with an intentional throwback right, to that verse. In the beginning, what was the word? The word was with God. The word was God. All things were created through him. John saw this Jewish man from the first century not only as the carpenter's son, but as the creator God. Jesus is the true and better Adam. All right, this true and better, I really like that phraseology. It's from Tim Keller. He would use this all the time to talk about Christ. But Jesus is the true and better Adam. Adam, the progenitor of humanity. He failed his test in the garden. And so the human race fell and was kicked out of the presence of God. But Jesus, the progenitor of, the, of a new humanity, of a new creation, passed his test in the garden so that he could bring humanity back into the presence of God. Jesus is a snake crusher. You do remember. You remember Genesis 3.15? You remember we talked about it. Right? In, in the curse to the, the, the snake, I will put enmity between your offspring and her offspring. He will strike your head and you will strike his heel. Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil. Right? He came. He is the snake crusher to crush the head of the ancient serpent to deliver his people from sin, Satan, and death. Jesus is the blessing to the nations, right? Abraham, what, what did God tell Abraham? I'm gonna make you a blessing and, and through your offspring, all the nations will be blessed. In Galatians 3, Paul says, you can go read it, Paul says the offspring, the offspring that God was talking about is Christ. Before he left, Jesus says, take my message, take this good news of salvation, of forgiveness, of life to all the nations. Jesus is the son of Abraham who has blessed all the nations on earth. Jesus is the true Passover lamb as the Israelites killed a lamb and painted blood on the doorposts of their house in Egypt so that the judgment of God would pass over them. Jesus is our true Passover lamb whose blood covers us and saves us from the wrath of God. Jesus is the true and better Moses. Moses delivered God's people out of slavery and gives them the law, gives them the word. And Jesus is the true and greater Moses, delivers his people from slavery, our greatest slavery, slavery to sin and reveals the father to us. Jesus is the true and better manna. And just as God provided bread from heaven for the people in the wilderness to live, so God provided Jesus as the bread from heaven. This is John 6. But, but this bread, and Jesus says this, this bread doesn't just, the manna kept you alive for a little while, right? It gave you, it gave you physical life. But if you eat this bread from heaven, if you, eat, if you eat the bread of life, you'll never have to eat again. It'll keep you alive forever. His body is bread, miraculous provision from heaven that gives us life forever. He is the rock of Moses. He's the rock of Moses. It says in 1 Corinthians 10, 
as the rock in the wilderness was struck with the rod of God's judgment so that water could pour out for the people. So Jesus is struck with the rod of God's judgment on Golgotha and from him living water pours out that gives us life and that quenches the, the thirst of our hearts. I think I even forgot to put this one on, but Jesus is the true and better tabernacle. He's the true and better tabernacle. God's presence was with his people in the wilderness. How? In the tabernacle, the pillar of fire, the, the, the smoke, right? This, this was where God's presence dwelt. And when Jesus is announced, the, the angel says, this is Emmanuel, you've called Emmanuel. God with us, his presence with us. John says that he came and he tabernacled among us. He is the true tabernacle. He is the presence of God with his people. Jesus is the true and better Israel. He's the true and better Israel. In Exodus 4.22, God says, Israel is my firstborn son. This is why the, the last plague on the Israelites was to the death of the firstborn. Because God said, if you won't release my firstborn son, Israel, then I will take your firstborn son. When Jesus is baptized in the gospels and he comes out of the water, a voice from heaven says what? This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. And directly after this, he's led out into the wilderness for 40 days to be tempted by the devil, just as Israel came out through the water of the Red Sea and spent 40 years in the wilderness for their time of testing. When Jesus is tempted in the wilderness, he, he even quotes Deuteronomy where Moses is talking about the failure of God's people in the wilderness. But where Israel failed, as we saw over and over, Jesus was faithful. Jesus is the true and better Israel. He is the true people of God. Jesus fulfills all the sacrificial system. He is the great high priest. In Hebrews 9, 24, Christ did not enter a sanctuary made with human hands, but heaven itself, that he might now appear in the presence of God for us. Jesus intercedes for his people like a priest, not, not going into an earthly temple and giving a sacrifice, but going into the very presence of God, heaven itself. And not only is he the high priest, he's, he's our sacrifice. He's also the sacrifice. He has appeared one time at the end of the ages for the removal of sin by the sacrifice of himself, Hebrews says. He is the Lamb of God who came to take away the sins of the world. Jesus is the true temple. He's a true and better temple. When Jesus goes into Jerusalem, right, John 2, he, he kicks out the money changers and, and, and the people sell, buying and selling there. And, and the, the authorities come and they say, give us a sign to show us you have authority to do this. And he says, destroy this temple and I'll raise it back up in three days. And they say, we built this temple 46 years. You're going to raise it up in three days? But John explains to us, they didn't understand. He was talking about the temple of his body. He was talking about himself. Remember how the exiles at the end of the Old Testament were let down at the vision of the rebuilt temple. Right, they didn't even surpass the original temple in glory. The old people who had seen the first temple, they wept. They wept. Why? Because they knew this wasn't the promise. This wasn't the glory. This wasn't the center of the universe where all the nations would come and worship God. This wasn't even as good as the first one. And you know what? They were right. They were right. We needed a much more glorious temple. Well, we have one. We have one. Jesus is the true and better temple. We don't come to God any longer in the physical space of the temple. Instead, we come to God in Jesus Christ. He's the root and son of David. 
God promised David, one of, we saw, one of his sons would sit on the throne. His kingdom would last forever. We saw, is that Solomon? No, it's not Solomon. Solomon's unfaithful. Solomon fell. Jesus was a descendant of David and is the Davidic king who has promised, who has inaugurated his kingdom, who's been faithful to the law, who's delivered his people from their enemies and who's sat down on his throne and rules forever. Jesus is the true and better prophet. What do you hear in the prophets over and over? This is the word of the Lord. This is the word of the Lord, right? The Lord says this. Jesus doesn't just speak the words of God, but, but as we saw in John 1, he is the word of God. Right, as we read in Hebrews at the beginning, long ago, God spoke to our ancestors by the prophets at different times and in different ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. He is the God's revelation, God's speaking. He's the ultimate disclosure of himself to humanity. Jesus is the gentle king of Isaiah 42 who brings justice to the nations without breaking a bruised reed, without uh, putting out a smoldering rick. We saw his gentleness. He's the suffering servant of Isaiah 53, being crushed for our iniquities. By his wounds, we are healed. Do you see? And would you believe? This is not exhaustive. This is barely even scratching the surface. I'm not even saying like 10% of the things that the New Testament says Jesus is and how he fulfills all of God's promises in the Old Testament. Do you see? All of the promises of God find their yes in him. Jesus is the fulfillment. God is faithful to all of his promise and it's through Jesus Christ. All the kingdom promises are fulfilled in him. Or what have we talked about? God's God's people, God's place, God's rule and blessing. Jesus is God's people. He's the true and better Adam. He's the true and better Israel. He is the faithful people of God. Jesus is is God's place. He's the true temple, the center of the promised land, of of God's blessing on on everyone. He's he's God's place where we meet God. He is God's rule and blessing. He is the covenant-keeping king. He's the covenant keeper, the one who earns. Listen, he earned all the blessings of the covenant. Remember we read in Deuteronomy, if you do this, you'll live, you'll be blessed. If you don't, you'll be be put out into exile. And they always were put into exile. They always failed. And Jesus succeeded. He's the covenant keeper and he gets all the blessings of the covenant. But instead of just keeping them for himself, he sacrificed himself for all of those who have broken the covenant and who have received the curse. You see, what does Galatians say? He became a curse for us. (laughs) He took the curse so that we could have the blessing. All the promises of God find their yes in him. He is the revelation and the fulfillment of all that God has promised. But if you can believe it, that's not even all. And so let's zoom out a little more to the universal. What does Jesus have to do with everything? Colossians 1 says this, for everything was created by him in heaven and on earth, the visible and the invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things and in, by him all things hold together. You see what it says? Look at what the verse says. Everything was created by him. He made everything. 
Jupiter, skin follicles, electrons, galaxies that we'll never see too far away. He made them all. Not only that, all things have been created through him and for him. For him. Why does Saturn exist? Why do mosquitoes exist? That's a question I have. You know what? The Bible says, for Jesus. Everything's for Jesus. It's everything was created for him. It's why, it's why this is all, it's why it, it, existence. <laughs> it's everything, right? You and I, why are, we, why are we here? For Jesus, for him. He made us and he made us for himself. Not only that though, it just doesn't stop. He, he, he's created through him and for him. He's before all things and by him, all things hold together. All things hold together. Why does gravity continue to pull us down onto this rock of earth? You're like, oh, magnetic fields and the rotation of the earth and around the sun and all that. Yeah, like we understand any of that, first of all. But then second of all, but you can just keep asking the question, well, why does it rotate around there? Well, why? And, and you, know the, you know science's answer? We don't know. It just does. You know the Bible's answer? Why does gravity keep working? Because Jesus holds it together. Why isn't this building falling in on us right now? Why is the steel strong, maintaining its integrity? Because Jesus is holding the steel together. Why are your lungs still inflating? Because Jesus is working. Why is the, the atmosphere holding the right percentage of oxygen in the, to make air that we can breathe? Because Jesus is holding all of it together. People ask and philosophers argue about it. Does it take more power to create something or to hold it together? Moment by moment. And I don't know the answer to that question, but I do know that Jesus does both. He made it all. He holds it all together. And this is amazing, but redemption includes everything. Right? It's not just us. If you keep reading in Colossians, for God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile everything to himself, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Paul tells us in Romans 8 that the creation eagerly waits for the adoption, uh, for, for God's sons to be revealed. For the creation, and it was subjected to futility, it was subjected to decay, and when sin hit, it broke everything in hope, in the hope, Right? In the hope that the creation itself will also be set free from its bondage to decay into the glorious freedom of God's children. Listen, Jesus doesn't just bring all of biblical history together. He does, and it's beautiful. Jesus brings literally everything together. He brings together, sums up all of it. Now we've seen, we've seen these three perspectives, right? We've seen who Jesus is, personal, right? If you were there, if you saw him, we, we've seen some of what uh, the biblical historical is, some of, of uh, what, what, how, how the Bible and how his followers, Jesus' followers who knew him, what they said that, that he, his life meant. We, we've seen from a universal perspective, as far as we can go, who Jesus is. 
and, and if that's true, then I think the question is how, how should we respond? How should we respond? And in Revelation, uh, the last book of the Bible, we see uh, a vision into the future. It's kind of a window. John is taken and he sees uh, what is to come. And I want to read some of this. Uh, and I think this will get us to what, how, what should our response be. This is Revelation chapter five. So then I saw in the right hand of the one seated on the throne a scroll with writing on both sides, sealed with seven seals. I also saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or even to look in it. I wept and wept because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or even to look in it. Then one of the elders said to me, do not weep. Look, the lion from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. And then I saw one like a slaughtered lamb standing in the midst of the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders. He had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent into all the earth. He went and took the scroll out of the right hand of the one seated on the throne. And, and listen, there's a lot of imagery here. This is apocalyptic literature. How do you understand these things? But, but do you see the imagery? Do you see who this is? Who is the lion of the tribe of Judah? Who is the root of David? Who is the lamb who was slain? It's Jesus. It's Jesus. And he takes the scroll. And here's the response. When he took the scroll, the four living creatures, the 24 elders, fell down before the lamb. Each one had a harp and golden bowls filled with incense, which are the prayers of the saints. I didn't listen again. Who, who are these? Who are the four living creatures? Who are the elders? Well, we're not gonna get into that right now, but can we agree that they, they have a slightly more accurate vision of God than we do? They're closer to him than we are at the moment, right? Let's just see what they say because of what they see. And they sang a new song, verse nine. You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slaughtered and you purchased people for God by your blood from every tribe and language and people and nation. You made them a kingdom and priests to our God and they will reign on the earth. <laughs> Worship. Then I looked, verse 11, and heard a voice, the voice of many angels around the throne and also of the living creatures and the elders. Their number was countless thousands plus thousands of thousands. We have all the 24 elders, we have the four living creatures, and now we have thousands upon thousands upon thousands of angels, all with one voice. All right, and again, these angels, do you think they have a good, accurate picture of who God is and who the Lamb is, who Jesus is? I think they do, and here's what they say. Worthy is the Lamb, who was slaughtered to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. It doesn't stop there. Verse 13, I heard every creature in heaven, on earth, under the earth, on the sea, and everything in them. Oh, it's everybody now. It's us. Every creature, what does it sound like when four living creatures, when 24 elders, when thousands upon thousands and myriads of myriads of angels and every creature in heaven and on earth, what does it sound like when one voice, when they say something together? 
And they say, blessing and honor and glory and power be to the one seated on the throne and to the lamb forever and ever. <laughs> Listen, when you're there, when you see, this is what you will say. You will know then that he is worthy of worship. You will know it, right? When, when you awake from the sleep of death to everlasting life, when you, oh, your eyes are clear, when your faith is made sight, you're gonna see clearly, and you know what you're going to do? You're going to worship like this. You will know then. And if you, if you know then, if you will know then, why not now? Why not now? You gonna argue you have a better picture of reality now than you will then? What should we do? We should worship. We should worship. This is what worship is, right? It comes from worth-ship. It's giving, attributing worth, acknowledging something or someone's worth. It's giving our praise, our adoration, our affection, our attention, all right? our, our devotion, our time, our money, our energy, our honor and glory, right? giving everything. If you will know then, then why not now? Why not now? Do, do you know him now? How do you answer the question, who is Jesus? Do you know him? Do you know him? Does he have all of you? Right? Have you given him everything? Or are you playing a game? <laughs> yeah, I can have my Sundays, but the rest is mine. He can have everything except my bank account, my money, you know, that's my stuff. He can have everything, but, you know, like, right, what, what are you holding back? If Jesus is who the scriptures say he is, if he is who he claimed to be, if he's who we've seen today, and I hope the Holy Spirit has, has testified to your heart that's true, who he is, then he deserves all the praise, all the glory, all the honor, all the worship. There's nothing that we could ever hold back, is there? We might, we might sense, we might be able to sense what, what uh, the great hymn writer Charles Wesley felt when he wrote his famous hymn. Oh, for a thousand tongues to sing my great Redeemer's praise. Oh, for a thousand tongues to sing. Oh, for a million hands to raise to him. Oh, for a billion lives to give. But I only have one. <laughs> he can have it. <laughs> it's his. All of it's his. Let's pray. As the band comes, uh, please take a moment to be with the Lord. And I just want to invite the Holy Spirit to come. 
the third person of the Trinity, presence of God with us. We know that the Lord is the spirit. Where the spirit of the Lord is, there's freedom. We know that, that we all with unveiled face, this is 2 Corinthians 3, we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the spirit. So Holy Spirit, we invite you, we ask that you would make your presence known here to us. We ask that you would come and you would minister to our hearts that we could see Jesus and be made like him. saying to you maybe you're here and you, you've never understood you never realized who Jesus is but you want him you see now you want to give yourself to him you can do that you just admit that you've been wrong. You admit you've lived your life for yourself. You've worshiped everything else, but not him. You ask his forgiveness. You trust that his sacrifice was for you. He rose from the dead, that he's the Lord. He's listening. but you've gotten distracted and you just worship lots of other things. You've not given Jesus the, the worship that he deserves, the attention he deserves, the glory he deserves. Maybe the Holy Spirit himself is bringing to your mind something that you need to confess. Talk to him about that. Father, we thank you. Father, that you would love people like us. Jesus, that someone, someone so magnificent, so glorious, so beautiful, so powerful, 
love us, people like us, would come and die for us. It's unbelievable. <laughs> it's almost too good to be true. We thank you that it is. Lord, would you now pour out your love into our hearts by your Holy Spirit. Whether we've known you for 50 years or whether we're meeting you right now for the first time, would you pour your love into our hearts? Would we see? Holy Spirit, remove the veil that keeps us from seeing the light of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Shine your light into our hearts. Thank you, Lord.